the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And first this morning, Katie Mullally and I speak with astrophysicist and night sky ambassador Tyler Nordgren. He'll share tips and information on viewing the 2023 annular solar eclipse. It's closer to Park City than you might think, and it's happening on Saturday. We delve into the history of one of nature's greatest displays. Then join in the hunt for meteorites in Antarctica with Jim Carner. He's a research associate professor of geology and geophysics at the University of Utah, where he and his team endure the harsh Antarctic conditions in the hopes of finding one of these rare cosmic visitors. This all coming up on Cool Science Radio. Stay with us. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm Katie Mullally. The solar eclipse has fascinated humankind for eons, from mythology to omens to turning points in fictional literature. Today, this perfect meeting of the sun, moon, and earth continues to capture our attention. Now, on October 14th, we'll be lucky enough once again to witness this celestial alignment just a few hours away from Park City. To tell us more about the annular eclipse is Tyler Nordgren. He's an astrophysicist, artist, author, and night sky ambassador. Tyler, welcome to Cool Science Radio. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, just rattling off some of the things you do is probably not even enough to help our listeners understand what it is that you do. Oh, and you're also a uh, professor of astronomy and physics at the University of Redlands. So what captivates you and everything you do when it comes to the solar eclipse? I was one of those kids that grew up in the 70s and 80s. Carl Sagan would be on the TV and, and I read his book, Cosmos. So one of the passions in my life is being able to communicate and wanting to communicate to people about the interesting astronomy that's going on in the world and the science that's being done. And a solar eclipse is one of the most astounding astronomical events that any human being can, can witness with their own eyes. It, the, the words just don't captivate what it's like to be there. It's not just a scientific experience, it's an emotional experience. So it's a wonderful chance to communicate with people, especially those who are actually living in the path of one of these eclipses. And so that's what I've been doing for the, the last few years of my life. How fun. Well, lots of people from our area here traveled north just a couple of hours to witness the total solar eclipse in 2017 in August. I'm wondering where you were. I was out in the high desert of eastern Oregon. Uh, it had one of the highest probabilities of clear skies. And so uh, my, my wife and a group of friends and what wound up being the Alumni Association from Reed College where I was an undergraduate, we all stayed on a, a ranch out there and just had the most glorious blue skies and clear weather for what was an astounding event. My, my wife said that all those talks she'd heard me give, uh, they did not oversell the total eclipse. Well, Tyler, the eclipse coming up on the 14th is an annular, and I know that many of us, again, travel two hours north to see a total. What is the difference between an annular and a total eclipse? Annular eclipse is an eclipse where the moon is just a little too far away from the Earth to completely block out the full disk of the sun. And that's because the, the moon has this elliptical orbit. So, for instance, people hear about these super moons. Well, that's where the moon is at its closest to us when it's full. Well, two weeks later, it's going to be at its most distant when it's passing between us and the sun. So with an annular eclipse, if you are right in that path of perfect alignment, you'll see what's called a ring of fire, the silhouette of the moon with a thin band of the sun's disk around it at the, the moment of alignment. So for all of our listeners, including myself and Lynn, who probably will tra be traveling down to Richfield to see the eclipse, what are the some viewing tips that you have for us? The, the first thing is that with an annular eclipse, there's no point at which the sun's disk is completely covered. So you you need to wear your eclipse glasses anytime you look at the sun during during that kind of an eclipse, which is fine. It, and, it's, and it's amazing, especially as to, to watch that partial phase 
change from where the sun looks like this thin C, letter C, into that moment it becomes a full ring. That's that's quite amazing. But so yeah, find yourself someplace beautiful, someplace attractive, someplace you want to be and, and to experience the subtle change of light on the landscape around you as this is going on. So Tyler, what do you think it is? You said when your wife saw the the total eclipse in Eastern Oregon, she said you didn't oversell it. And I know I thought that, and also I had to work, I think it was a Monday or something. And so I said, well, 90% will eclipse will be fine just staying in Park City and, and seeing it. And uh, it's one of the few regrets of my life that I did not travel to just, it was just two hours north to see the total because when people came back, they talked about it like it was an out-of-body experience. What is it about a total eclipse that that provides that experience, that feeling? There's a good friend of mine, a psychologist uh, by the name of Kate Russo, who's written a book she, who studies this effect of totality on people. And she talks about an eclipse being a, above us, around us, and within us. There is something about seeing that moment of totality where the moon and the sun have perfectly aligned, the sky goes dark, the stars and planets come out, that you, you suddenly find yourself where you, you know your place in the universe, you feel this alignment between you and literally the heavens. And there is something about that that just affects everyone in, in different ways, but but one of the, the things that people talk about this feeling of connection, and not just with the heavens, but with, with one another, with the, the people who've shared this experience with them. And it's something everyone seems to share, and it in effect on a really deep emotional level. And I've, I've witnessed this, and I've felt this myself, and my, my wife took a, a small video with her iPad of, of not the eclipse, but the crowd, as we were watching that eclipse in 2017. And I was watching it earlier today, and I can see in the darkness during totality, I suddenly get all choked up. And that wasn't my first, it won't be my last, but I got even choked up watching that video. So it is something that I cannot stress strongly enough, that experience that you had, do whatever you can, get yourself into totality. And if you can't, and if not everyone has that ability, go out and see what you can, and see it with, with your family, with your friends, take that time. Well, with that in mind, how many eclipses have you traveled the world? How how many total eclipses have you traveled the world to see? Relatively few uh, for eclipse chasers. I think I've traveled to see something like nine. My most recent one was in December of 2021 to Antarctica. I was on a ship in the Wet L Sea off the, the, the coast of Antarctica. And I have never been more clouded out than I was on that day. Uh, you you couldn't even tell where the ocean stopped and the and the clouds began, but yet it was still uh, an experience I will never forget. And a, a day later, we I stood on a beach with a quarter million penguins, so I, I completely forgot about the eclipse at that point. Not to say not to go see them, but when you do go to see a total eclipse, the thing I highly recommend to people is go someplace that you've always wanted to go. Go someplace you want to be. That way, no matter what happens, if there's a freak cloud in the sky, you'll have a wonderful experience, and especially if you're sharing it with, with other people, people you love. Well, Tyler, solar eclipses are obviously a big passion of yours, not just through the education and the outreach that you do before them, but in 2016, you wrote a book called Sun, Moon, Earth, the history of solar eclipses from omens to doom to Einstein and exoplanets. What inspired you to write this book? I actually experienced my first total solar eclipse at the age of nine. Uh, it was in 1979. It was the last time a total solar eclipse had touched the mainland U.S. prior to that 2017 eclipse. And my experience of totality, and the reason why I, I tell people I experience totality is because I was so terrified by all the news reports telling you not to look at the sun, you'd burn your eyes out. I thought for sure there must be some special rays that came out of the sun only during totality that would burn your eyes to a crisp. And so I hid in my house with the curtains drawn, too afraid to look outside, and I watched it on TV. I still remember how dark the house got, but there was no way I was going to accidentally look outside lest you know I, I went blind. 
And it took me 20 more years before I finally got a chance to see one. And when I did, I realized what a life-changing experience I'd been cheated out of as a child if I had just turned around, gone to the window, pulled apart the, cla- the, the curtains and looked up, how might that have changed my life? So I, I, I wrote that book partly with the idea of let's not have any other nine-year-old be in that same position that I was. So in that book, throughout the history of time, do you have a favorite omen or mythology surrounding the solar eclipse? Because I'm sure there's some good ones out there. I mean, if you were traumatized in modern day, I can only imagine what it felt like way back when. There's a story I I tell in there from uh, Hindu mythology in which there's this, this giant, immortal, bodiless head that goes around chasing the sun and the moon. And when he catches them, uh, Rahu, the, the demon, will, will attempt to swallow them. And if you're down below seeing this, you, you need to make as much of a sound, as much of a noise as you can, bang pots and pans together. Because if if you can startle Rahu, he, he might drop the sun from his mouth and the eclipse will only be partial. The first time I did see totality in 1999 as a, as a professional astronomer at a, at a meeting in, in Budapest, you know, I, I knew the science of this. I knew all of what went on with an eclipse from a scientific perspective. But even I had the hair on the back of my my neck and my arms stand on, on end. And I realized, yes, if I had pots and pans to bang, I would bang them at that moment because I totally get that feeling. You know, I wondered, Tyler, if it had something to do with seeing the power or realizing the power and the magnitude of the sun because when the when the eclipse happens and it goes and it i mean i don't know how many degrees cooler it got at the time but that for some reason that's what stuck with me and that and the power of the sun if it were taken away what that would mean i don't know why that is the thing that stuck with me you are absolutely right i mean it is it is the one moment in which that life-giving power of the sun becomes absolutely visceral you can go from the hottest summer day without a cloud in the sky, and suddenly you're, you're standing in the shadow of the moon. The, the temperature drops by 10 degrees. That that life-giving sun that you know maybe you've you've ignored because you know it's too bright. You don't look at it. Suddenly it goes black, and the the sky is this blue, purple, opalescent color. I mean, it, it is the most unnatural na- natural thing you'll, you're ever going to see. So yeah everything about the universe suddenly goes wrong in that moment. The only way it could be more wrong is if suddenly gravity turned off and we flew up into the sky. It it is that level of unnatural. Exactly. Okay, so in Utah here, we have been told at Richfield, Utah, which is about two and a half hours south of where we are, that's where you're going, going to see the best view of the annular solar eclipse. How wide is the swath that you can see it best from? The the path of annularity uh, is this big diagonal banding. It, it starts up a crater lake up in Oregon on the, in the, on the Oregon coast, and it, it heads down through Nevada, Utah. Uh, there in Utah, let's see, Bryce Canyon National Park is, I think, on the southern edge of that, that band. So you imagine you know, Ridgefield down to, to, to Bryce is about how wide that is. And as it goes across Capitol Reef, Canyon Lands, out through Glen Canyon, uh, Monument Valley, it just, so many iconic parts of Utah are just smack in the middle of that. It it is going to be utterly spectacular. No no shortage of truly iconic, beautiful places to, to witness this. So Tyler, you're not just an eclipse evangelist. You are also an astrophysicist and you've worked on the Mars, what was it, the, the Mars dial, a solar, a sundial that the Martian rovers were using on Mars. Tell us about that. So starting back with the Spirit and Opportunity rovers that that launched in 2003 and, and landed in 2004, sitting on the solar panels of each of those rovers is this calibration target. And it's something that allows the, the camera to photograph on the spacecraft where you know what colors the thing should be. There's a post in the middle that will cast a shadow so you can see what colors look like under the the Martian sun, but also in shade. 
and it allows you to, to color balance, uh, to calibrate your, your images so that you can, you can see what, what true color looks like. Uh, I had a, a professor from Cornell uh, who I was a teaching assistant for, Steve Squires, who is the, the lead investigator on those rovers. And one day he was talking to a, a famous Cornell alum, a fellow by the name of Bill Nye. He's kind of a science guy. And, and Bill mentioned that, well, you know, you've, you've got this thing with a post that casts shadows. That, that's a sundial. So there was a group of about six or seven of us that, that worked to turn these sort of scientific little targets into working sundials. Uh, and what I, I've always loved sundials. And so I, I think one of the contributions I made was, well, hey, if you're going to have a sundial, all sundials have a little motto on them. So we should come up with a motto for ours. And the, the motto that we came up with was two worlds, one sun. So it's part and parcel of this idea that, that we all share the sun, whatever, wherever we may be on Earth and whatever planet we may be on in the solar system. Well, I know like a, if a tree falls in the wood in the woods and no one's there to hear, it doesn't make a sound. Similar, if an eclipse happens on another planet, does it actually matter? So do eclipses happen on other planets? Yes, they do. Uh, they are very different looking than what we have here. So for instance, Mars has two, two small moons, Phobos and Deimos. Unlike our moon, which is a giant, big, great, big sphere, uh, Phobos and Deimos are little irregular, lumpy potatoes. And one of the things that uh, spirit and opportunity and, and now curiosity and perseverance have all photographed is little solar eclipses from Phobos and Deimos passing in front of the sun. And because they're too small to completely cover the sun, in essence, they're annular eclipses, kind of like what you're going to experience on, on October 14th. That makes me wonder, what do astronauts who are in the International Space Station experience during a solar eclipse? Oh, wow. Let's see. Um, so one, one thing that they, they definitely get to see is the, the shadow of the moon moving across the Earth beneath. You know, a good question. I don't, I haven't looked to find out if the International Space Station is actually going to be going through that shadow. Just seeing so, the shadow on the Earth, though, would be just wild, wouldn't it? It would. I mean, that shadow moves across the surface of the Earth at over 1,000 miles per hour, which is... Yeah, you know, it's pretty tremendous. So being able to look down and see that, um, you know, I do recall that one of the Apollo missions coming back from the moon actually flew into witnessed a solar eclipse. Uh, so you know, they're they're seeing the same thing that 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 we would in a way the 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 moon passing in front of the sun from their vantage point. But you know, because the International Space Station takes only ninety minutes to travel completely around the Earth if they should be happening to, to go through that shadow of the moon, totality, I would I imagine, would just be incredibly brief, just a, mm -hmm. a, a few seconds of, of having that alignment with them. Oh, wonderful. Oh, I, I don't know if that's ever happened before. I'll have, I'll have to look <laughs> into that. I'm sure you'll find it out. Well, part of what you do uh, also that we haven't talked about yet is that you have this relationship with the national parks. And speaking of mottos, I love your motto, half the park is after dark. And this isn't obviously with regard to any eclipse, but it's about what you see when you're in a national park, because by and large, they're in very dark spaces where the dark sky helps illuminate everything that's going up, uh, going on up in the sky. So tell us about that, if you would. Well, I'll, I'll say that uh, a total solar eclipse is the perfect time to, to see the night sky. Uh, it's happening when the moon is between the earth and the sun. So the nights on either side of a solar eclipse are going to be dark moonless nights. And in October, the Milky Way is up. So if you're going to head down to see the, the annular eclipse somewhere in Utah or wherever you might be, spend the night before and after, and you're going to see a stunning sky uh, at this time of year. But I, I got I got working with the parks because as an astronomer who went out to observatories, I got used to seeing more and more uh, development that was that was happening around observatories and the skies were getting brighter uh, above the, the observatories that I was at. And it wasn't until I just happened to go to a national park uh, on vacation that I went to the evening ranger program and I heard about the park rangers who were actually aware of this and that had been seeing that the sky above their parks were beginning to get brighter. And 
you know, the, the wonderful thing about parks is because of the protections that they've made over the last hundred years uh, from runaway development within the parks, they are some of the darkest places that the public can go to. So it, they are perfect, 100% beautiful places to go and see a pristine night sky. So now I'm gonna have to leave a day early and take my eight inch Stubsonian telescope with me, but that'll be a very different experience than you taking your 10 inch Stubsonian on a river trip down the Grand Canyon. Why the Grand Canyon and why a Dobsonian? So I, I had been working with park rangers to help promote dark skies and, and talk to people, the evening ranger programs. But you know, an evening ranger program lasts for about an hour. People come in, they go, they leave. Round about 2010, I, I, I got connected to river runners uh, through Grand Canyon who would have people on the river for two weeks. And one of the things they told me was the, the number, the, the most common questions they get from, from folks on the river is, what's that bird and what's that star in the sky? So I, I started working with, with river guides to help give them the tools to, to be able to train them to interpret the night sky for their guests. And I got an invitation to come along with one company once after doing this. And we picked a night where it was going to be a two-week period where there was the least amount of moon in the sky. Uh, we did it in October so that after the sun goes down, the Milky Way is high overhead. And two weeks on the river, well, it's the perfect time to go through Grand Canyon. And I'll, and, I'll, and I'll mention, you need to have the Milky Way high overhead because when you're a mile down in the Grand Canyon, the only view you've got is, is pretty much right overhead. So you, you need to, you're only going to be looking at whatever is directly above you on certain nights. That is a life-changing experience as well. I bet. Well, a lot of times we talk with scientists who work with multidisciplinary teams, other people that have come together to help them achieve goals. But in looking at your your bio, you are your own multidisciplinary team. You're an author, you're a, a brilliant artist, astrophysicist, educator. How do you find that all of these different disciplines feed each other? Yeah, I'm, I'm the product of a liberal arts education. I, I, I strongly believe in science and art, science and communication. And so to be able to, to do this, to be able to share what I love, uh, with the public in all the ways that I can really is fulfilling for, for my life. And part of it is, as I've gotten older, I, I have realized the power of emotion, the power of awe. And there, there is work done in, in, the, in the social sciences about awe's ability to allow us to connect with one another and with the world around us. If you can experience awe, then you, you realize that, that we aren't the center of the universe, that there is much more to the universe than just ourselves. And so in, in a way, perhaps it helps makes us better people, better stewards of the planet, better companions with one another on in this world that we've got. So part of my goal is, yes, I want to share the science, but it's not just the science. It's what this amazing scientific phenomenon can do to actually inspire awe and inspire us to be better people and and perhaps take better care of one another spoken like a true reed college graduate <laughs> <laughs> i love it and your art is so much fun where can people find your art and order the posters because they are they're phenomenal if you love the eclipse you're going to want some of these posters Oh, thank you. I've got two websites. There's my own personal one, tylernordgren.com. But I'm I'm also, I'm going to be taking off for two weeks around this eclipse. So I've got another website, eclipsemerchandise.com that other folks handle. Uh, so they've got all my artwork. And so if you, if you need things right away, or, uh, you know, they're, they're the place to go to. Uh, otherwise, I'll get back in, in mid, mid October. But it's yeah, it's a chance to to share all of my eclipse designs, all of my national park designs. For the 2017 eclipse, I was away for uh, for about 10 days for the eclipse, and when I got home, I found that the day of totality, I'd gotten 2,400 orders to my website. It took me weeks to manage to roll all of those posters into tubes and get them <laughs> off to the post office. So I'm hoping to get on top of it for this for this eclipse. Well, maybe in the meantime, a rolling, a mechanized rolling machine has been invented. 
<laughs> well, our guest is Tyler Nordgren. He's an astrophysicist, an artist, an author, a professor, and a night sky ambassador. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio. This has been really fun. And I think we forgot to mention in Southern Utah, about 10 a.m. on Saturday, October 14th, is the an annular solar eclipse. It's been a delight uh, to be here, and I'm so excited for you too. I I can't wait to hear how how it is for you and 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 your listeners. So good luck, clear skies, and enjoy that moment. Wonderful, thank you. And again, the annular solar eclipse taking place this Saturday. Now, in the spots where it is dead on. It's in a trajectory across Utah from the northwest to the southeast, um, but starting very much south of Salt Lake City. And if you don't have another plan for Saturday, again, it happens around 10 a.m. The the total or the annual eclipse will happen for about four minutes and 46 seconds in the the places in Utah where it is dead on. And those places are places like Meadow, right, on I-15, Richfield, just off of I-15 and I-70. Fillmore is a good place. Beaver is a good place. Uh, Bryce Canyon, even, even sort of on the southern part of it. Bluff, Mexican Hat, Monticello is a bit on the north end of it. If you happen to be in Moab, you can, you know, drive south and you just wake up early, grab your coffee, and go. So I'm looking forward to doing that this weekend. Don't forget your eclipse glasses. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. When you think of Antarctica, what typically comes to mind are penguins in cold, very cold temperatures and vast amounts of snow and ice, not hunks of rock from outer space. Well, it turns out that Antarctica is the ideal place to find these hunks of rock. With its vast expanse of white, meteorites stand out against the harsh landscape, allowing them to be spotted by meteorite hunters who endure the harsh Arctic conditions just for the chance of finding one of these cosmic visitors. And leading the hunt is Jim Carner, Research Associate Professor of Geology and Geophysics at the University of Utah. Jim, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you. Antarctica seems to be such an ideal place to find meteorites. Are they just naturally drawn to the southern poles, or is there a reason that Antarctica is such a great place to find them? There is a reason. Uh, there's there's kind of a, a couple reasons. So they aren't drawn to anywhere on the planet more than others, so they're not drawn to the equator or the poles. But Antarctica is a special place. It's It's continent under all that ice, and it's been ice covered for, you know, some 30 million years. And during those 30 million years, meteorites have been raining down on the surface. They've been caught up in the ice, buried, and then they move with the ice sheet in Antarctica. And if you can think of Antarctica as kind of an overturned bowl of ice, all the ice is kind of sliding off. The glaciers are running towards the periphery of the continent. Now, there's mountains kind of that transect Antarctica. They're called the Trans-Antarctic Mountains. And where this ice... Uh, this flowing ice intersects these mountains. The glaciers are stalled and ablated away by uh, sunshine and evaporation and sublimation. And the meteorites just kind of pop up to the surface. They're being carried in the glacier. And as the surface is ablated away, they pop up on the surface and they stay there frozen in a deep freeze for a long time. So we just have to find the right place in Antarctica and we can go find them right on the surface. So, Jim, you are a geologist, and geology yes. is typically very Earth-centered, but you study non-Earth objects. What drew you to meteorites? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I remember taking my first geology class. My father was a geologist, a terrestrial geologist. And I took geology just to kind of say, hey, what does my dad actually do? And so we had a little unit in that first geology class I took that was planetary science and kind of tells you about the origin of the solar system and how we study that. And it talked about meteorites and, and you know, the moon. We had been to the moon and collected rocks from the moon. And this was just fascinating to me. And I, I kind of was hooked from there and, and kind of led myself in a planetary science or planetary geology course of study. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're speaking with Jim Carner, 
He's a research associate professor of geology and geophysics at the University of Utah. And Jim, you know, speaking about your family and where you were brought up, I think it was Minnesota. And so you say that the inhospitable climate in Antarctica is, uh, you were prepped for it, shall we say, by the those frigid and humid, humid cold, different than Utah, winters in Minnesota. But tell us a little bit about what it's like down there. Yeah, well, actually, it was North Dakota. It was Grand Forks, North Dakota, which is a very cold place in the winter. In fact, it's below zero for many, you know, I think one year they had 80 degrees, 80 days below zero in Grand Forks. So it's similar to Antarctica. It's actually a little colder. When we're out in Antarctica, of course, it's the southern summer. So we have 24 hours sunlight. The sun is just kind of low in the sky, making a big circle in the sky, but it is cold. The temperature is about zero degrees Fahrenheit where we are at in the mountains. We're usually decent elevation, like 8,000 feet or 7,000 feet. But the big factor in Antarctica at where we are on the Antarctic plateau, as they call it, is the winds. The winds can be very fierce. You get catabatic winds. Those are kind of pressure driven winds that come off the continent and kind of roll down from high to low and they can get going. If it's 15 mile an hour winds, uh, we're, we're right on the border of whether we can work. It's kind of a ground blizzard then. And we can be in storms that have sustained winds of 40, 50 mile an hour winds for days and days. So the winds are a big factor in Antarctica. Otherwise, it's it's right around zero, which is tolerable. Okay, yeah. debatable, whether that's yeah. tolerable. <laughs> so Jim, I always love to ask this question, because I think we either don't know as lay people, or we forget in between times we've heard about meteors and meteorites. But differences between asteroid, comets, meteors and meteorites. Yeah. Please. Okay, well, that's a lot, but I'll try to do as, as good as possible here with these definitions. So when we think of an asteroid, we usually think of a big rock in space that's between in a belt orbiting the sun in between Mars and Jupiter. And you can think of science fiction. It shows all these uh, boulders out in space and the spaceship has to maneuver through the asteroid belt that's in between Mars and Jupiter. We actually get most meteorites from asteroids. Sometimes these asteroids are tugged by Jupiter's gravity, and instead of a circular orbit around the sun, they get pulled in a weird elliptical orbit around the sun, where their furthest point of orbit is still in the asteroid belt, but now they're coming really close to Earth. And those are called kind of near-Earth objects or near-Earth asteroids. And in the digital phone news age, week to week, you see an article about this asteroid is going to pass so close to Earth. You know, it's it's like going to be a million miles away or whatever, and those are close passes. Those are near-Earth asteroids. And we think most meteorites come from those near-Earth asteroids. They break off, they get sucked into the Earth's gravity, and they come through the atmosphere and land on Earth. So meteors are any rock that no matter what size, like maybe dust size, which will burn up in the atmosphere to, you know, basketball size. Those are rocks that enter our atmosphere, meteors. And if it lands on the ground and you can go and collect it, that's a meteorite. And so most of the material that comes into Earth's atmosphere burns up in the atmosphere. And we call that like shooting stars. You know, you see little flashes of light. Those are little dust specks burning up in the atmosphere. But if you see a big fireball, that indicates it might be a bigger object and it might not burn up in the atmosphere and it might come down and actually land on Earth as a meteorite. Jim, you are the co-principal investigator at the Antarctic Search for Meteorites. I have to say, it has the coolest logo I've ever seen. It's a penguin with a (laughs) baseball glove catching a meteorite over Antarctica. How long have you been involved with them and what is it that they do? So the Antarctic Search for Meteorites, or ANSMET, has been a U.S. project We're funded by NASA now. Uh, We have been funded by the National Science Foundation in the past, but it is uh, about 40 years old. I've been involved for about 12 years, and I've just kind of taken over the lead PI. Ralph Harvey of Case Western University in Cleveland was the longtime PI for a lot of years, 20-some years, and I've kind of taken over for him, but, you know, we still work together. But our job, our task is to go recover meteorites in Antarctica on a yearly basis. We hope we 
We've had some trouble in the pandemic as getting down there, but year by year, we've been over 40 times. We recover meteorites, bring them back, and we have a great support system back here in the States from NASA and the Smithsonian, NASA Johnson Space Center, to have these meteorites curated and then made available to scientists around the world for study. So I like to say we're the foremost suppliers of extraterrestrial materials for planetary scientists to study. We're really a, a good search team and, and a recovery team, and our samples are well curated, and they're free of charge for any researcher really in the whole world to study. You've got quite the niche market, I would have to say. Yes. With these meteorites that you're gathering and collecting and studying, what do you find are some of the different compositions of them, and how can you tell where they come from? Can, or can you tell where they come from because of that composition? Yes, that's a, um, a great question. So we think when people first started noticing, this is way back in the early times, the 1500s, they started noticing stones falling from the sky and they couldn't deny it. People speculated where they were from and people thought they were from the moon or from comets, things like that. And we gradually learned that they're probably from these near-Earth asteroids. They're actually from space. Of course, now, modern times, we have telescopes and spectroscopy where we can image these asteroids. And we think the compositions of these asteroids, we try to match them up with the compositions of the meteorites. We also have some meteorites from the moon. We've been to the moon, we've collected samples, we know what moon rocks look like. So we have a lot of meteorites that look like moon rocks and are identical basically to them. And we also have rocks that we are 99.9% .9 sure are from the planet Mars. We have rovers and orbiters on Mars and we actually had landers on Mars, the Viking landers, um, there's a lot of proof that points to we have pieces of Mars in our meteorite collections. So we have studied asteroids. We think they're the parent bodies of most meteorites, along with the moon and Mars. So are you able to answer the question, what happens when a particle from an asteroid becomes a meteor and enters our Earth's atmosphere and lands? How does its composition change and or does that matter what does it tell us yeah yeah so we don't we think that these like meteorites are mostly from asteroids little pieces that break off asteroids or or smaller pieces of asteroids or rocks in space we don't think they change much that's the beauty of having this atmosphere is basically they melt on the outside but that melt coating called a fusion crust of meteorites protects the inside. So a lot of the outside goes through that fireball stage. That's the burning of the meteorite. And, and basically you're forming a really thin crust of silicate rock around that outer part of the meteorite, but it actually protects the inside of a meteorite. So with the samples that you have studied, have you found any minerals or elements that are not found on earth? Yeah, so I always tell my students this, you know, the elements that we have on Earth are the same elements that form the solar system, and we don't think there's any different ones anywhere else in our solar system, but they do combine in different ways to form some different minerals. Like, for example, the atmosphere on the moon or, or the lack of an atmosphere on the moon or the formation conditions are really low oxygen compared to Earth and the inner Earth. So there's some minerals that form there that are just kind of in different structural states or the, the elements are kind of in a different configuration. And so we don't see those minerals on Earth, but we might see them on the moon or on Mars. And they're just a little different. And that's one way we can tell, hey, these planets have kind of different conditions of formation from Earth. So in all of your years, have you ever found anything in a meteorite that completely floored you that you were not expecting? Yeah, I've I've studied in in my studies I've studied a lot of Martian meteorite. I didn't discover this, but I I think the tale of Martian meteorites was that, you know, they had these weird meteorites in the in 1979 they had about 6 meteorites that were different from all the rest. In fact, they looked like volcanic rocks from Earth. And people couldn't understand where they were from, why these 6 meteorites looked so different from the 
other 1500 we had at the time or thousands we had at the time. And then it was discovered that the glass in those meteorites, so there were some glassy, rocky components, they contained some gases. The composition of those gases matched exactly what was measured on Mars by the Viking landers. So the Viking landers were in the late 70s. They landed on Mars. They took some atmospheric measurements on the surface of Mars. And so those surface of Mars gas measurements or atmosphere measurements measured exactly the same as these weird meteorites that we had. So I think that's kind of the most fascinating story I've ever known about meteorites that we discovered these meteorites are now from Mars. And at the time in the 80s or uh, early 80s, we had about seven Martian meteorites. Now we have more closer like to 200. So those have allowed us to study the planet of Mars and provide ground truth to all these rovers and orbiters and space missions that we have. So I think that's kind of the most exciting story about meteorites personally. That is pretty exciting. Jim, I'm wondering if what the conditions are for a solar body or not a solar body, but in our solar system or a planet to throw off asteroids. Yeah, that's a good question. So I think what 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 is happening is these meteorites from other planets and from asteroids are probably being liberated for, for sure on other planets. They're being liberated by other meteorites hitting those bodies. You know, you look at the surface of the moon, it's full of craters. So we know that the moon is constantly being pelted by other space debris and and meteorites. And sometimes the conditions are right where it knocks off chunks of, of the moon and those pieces survive and then come into our atmosphere. The same process happens on Mars. Asteroids, probably the same processes, collisions, and and just kind of breaking apart of the asteroids. Asteroids, some asteroids are not that well welded together. So tugs of gravity and, and little perturbations in gravity can kind of tear them apart a little. But most of these are are the consequences of impacts in our solar system. Okay, so that leads to my next question, which is due to the Earth's atmosphere and the gravity, this planet does not liberate asteroids, presumably. (laughs) Liberate (laughs) meteorites, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great question and, and, and great logic there. We do have some weird materials on Earth called tektites. And tektites are thought to be the the hypothesis now, and maybe even a theory, is that they are, when a meteorite comes down on Earth, hits it, forms a crater, blasts a bunch of material off, but the material just goes into the atmosphere and melts and then rains back on Earth. So they're glassy little balls and teardrop shapes and dumbbell shapes and things like that. They're called tektites. So those that's true. The atmosphere of the Earth now probably does not liberate a lot of material off its surface. But there are people, uh, I read a paper probably 20 years ago now that maybe the early Earth that didn't have a heavy atmosphere was liberating materials off the Earth. And so their hypothesis was that we could hunt meteorites of early Earth on the surface of the moon, which, which is pretty wild, but maybe not untenable. Last year, Lynn and I were just talking about the fact that we'd forgotten that there was a meteorite that hit Utah. Yes. Boom and the Great Salt Lake meteorite. Were you involved in the locating and evaluation of that meteorite? I was, yes. So um, that was an amazing thing. I don't know if you all heard the sonic booms that happened on that Saturday, August 13th. I remember it well. I stepped out into my driveway. It was 8.30 in the morning. Boom. I heard this big boom and rolling thunder after that. And I just coincidentally was reading, uh, just browsing some a guidebook to meteorites that are called falls. And falls are ones where people witness a fireball and then they find the meteorite that caused that fireball. There's been about 200 falls 
in the United States where people have witnessed a fireball and then seen a meteorite come down or found the meteorite after it came down. And a lot of people that describe these things, their witnesses, they describe this big sonic boom and rolling thunder as the meteorite is breaking the sound barrier and breaking up in the atmosphere. So I immediately thought, wow, that that could be what a meteorite sounds like. I'd never heard it before, but the descriptions that people said, I thought, wow, that could be a meteorite. Well, a little later that day, I think the governor confirmed that it wasn't any ordinance that was blowing up and it wasn't any jets that were making sonic booms. So I quickly went on the internet and went to the American Meteor Society page where witnesses can say they saw a fireball. And sure enough, people had seen a fireball early that morning. And then... The video came out from, I think it was Snow Basin, had a video of the fireball coming over kind of east to west, east to west across Utah and and headed for Salt Lake. So then I actually, uh, (laughs) this is a long-winded story, but I, I contacted a colleague at NASA who has made kind of the discovery and been a vital part of it that falling meteorites are detectable in Doppler radar. And Doppler radar is available for all parts of the United States. Basically, we have Doppler radar to track storms and precipitation. They cover the whole United States. So I asked him, I said, can you look in the radar data and see if you found falling meteorites and maybe we could go collect it. And sure enough, he got back to me really fast. The Doppler radar had caught the meteorites coming down right west of the bottom half of Salt Lake. We went out searching for it a couple days later. Unfortunately, myself and and Janie Radabaugh from BYU, another geology professor, we didn't find anything, but we found the people that did find something that, that same day. We talked with them. We got them to give us a piece, and we actually classified the meteorite, kind of just doing the composition and classification and then we submitted the name for the great salt lake meteorite and we're still working on it today we've got a couple undergrads working on that great salt lake meteorite how big was that meteorite there was probably about three kilograms that have been found so far on the ground so in several pieces i think probably a dozen pieces have been found so far and and they probably total around three kilograms so pretty big and and the piece that we saw was kind of you know fist size but just a beautiful black fusion crust nice fresh meteorite it was it's pretty amazing to see that that caused that sonic boom and then we found it three days later well jim since i'm sure lynn nor myself will make it to antarctica anytime soon (laughs) to look for meteorites what can we look for if we're out hiking in the desert or up in the mountains what how does a meteorite not that they're lying about abundantly but you never know What can I look for if I'm out hiking, searching for crystals or mushrooms instead? (laughs) Yes. Well, I'll say that there's a lot of rock hounds in Utah, and I get inquiries just about every week of people that are curious to whether they found a meteorite or not. They're exceedingly rare. Only 26 meteorites have ever been found in Utah. Most of those are pretty small, like half the size of a golf ball, just little rock bits. But meteorites will attract a magnet. About 95% of meteorites have iron nickel metal in them. They're either totally composed of iron nickel metal or they have bits of iron nickel metal in them. So they will strongly attract a regular old kitchen magnet. But saying that, there are materials in the desert called magnetite. It's a mineral that's very common in the desert. It's a black rock, a black mineral that people mistake often, very often for a meteorite. But anything that you find, if I was looking for meteorites in Utah, I'd look for black rocks that might have maybe have a fusion crust, if you can see it, or a worn kind of patina on it. And I'd also look for something very spherical or rounded on the corners. Meteorites are not angular. In fact, when they come through the atmosphere, they burn into like an equidimensional object and very smooth around corners, kind of like a uh, a modern car compared to the boxy cars of the 70s. All the corners are nice and rounded out. So that's what I would look for. And then, uh, it, of course, it would be attracted to a magnet very strongly. Well, Jim Carter, thank you so much for joining us. Jim is the 
co-principal investigator at the Antarctic Search for Meteorites. He's a professor, a research associ associate professor of geology and physics at the University of Utah and a meteorite hunter as well. So Jim, thank you for joining us. We will put links to the Antarctic site and other information on our website. Thank you very much. That was enjoyable. Exciting stuff out there in space. Thanks to Jim Carner and also Tyler Nordgren. And hope you find your spot to take a look at the annular solar eclipse on Saturday at 10 a.m. Just another announcement. Have a moment remaining. The Natural History Museum of Utah is one of those places that many in Summit and Wasatch counties may not have visited yet. A wonderful place in Salt Lake, and there's a market that happens both Saturday and Sunday. It's a 2023 Indigenous Art Market taking place at the Nat Natural History Museum of Utah. It features Native American artists, dancers, and speakers from around the country. The celebration of Indigenous art and culture brings the best Native American jewelry, painting, pottery, sculpture, beadwork, textiles, and carvings to Salt Lake City. In addition to the market, there will be special performances from Community Hoop and Dance Performance Group. There will be fry bread and Indian tacos and talks from artists Eugene Tapahe and Jihan Giron. Join the Natural History Museum of Utah for this unforgettable event. It's Saturday and Sunday. Well, Saturday after the eclipse, right? It's 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. and the same on Sunday. And you can go to nhmu.utah.edu for more information. Tune in next week to The Mountain Life. We'll be featuring a film made by champion skier Bodie Miller along with filmmaker Brett Rapkin. It's called The Paradise Paradox. It, uh, pre or it debuted to a private audience in Park City about a week ago, but it deals with looking at the mental health crises and challenges in mountain towns, and it specifically features Eagle County in Colorado, where Vail sits, and it looks at some of the issues there in terms of resources and what they do to grow the resources around mental health. Also takes a look at what Altera Ski Company is doing. All that coming up next week on The Mountain Life at 9 a.m. on Wednesday.